This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, November 14th, 2022, on your public radio station, KUAF. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. The National Weather Service is issuing a winter weather advisory through midnight with snow possibility across northwest Arkansas and eastern Oklahoma. Higher terrains could see as much as three inches of snow, though most of the area is expected to get between one and two inches of snow. It's November for crying out loud. <laughs> Farmers take note of the weather year-round, and we'll start the show today with farms. Our first story is The First from Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope and Jared Phillips, an Arkansas producer and professor at the University of Arkansas. Arkansas's agriculture industry contributes about $19 billion to the state's economy, and some family farms in this business were established more than 100 years ago. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports the state's Century Farm Program is meant to recognize these farms. Although some families feel secure, other producers experience pressure from rising land prices. It's seemingly easy to miss the turnoff down the narrow road to Cheryl and Randy West's farm in Prairie Grove. I have a, a variety of horses. <laughs> I grew up with horses. Trees with orange and red leaves line the curved gravel road beside their white house, situated near a hill overlooking a section of the farm that has been in Randy's family for about four generations. Oh, it's hard to say. It's just something we've always love to do and it's not really a job if you like what you're doing. The Wests watched their grandson Witten play outside. Their house looked like some other houses in Prairie Grove in October. It's decked out with scarecrows and pumpkins. Inside there are bowls and baskets filled with candy. Pictures of the West's grandparents are hung on the wall and set on an old organ sitting across from a china cabinet brimming with pink depression glass. Well, that, that is my mom and dad, and that is my great-grandparents. But there is a picture over on the other side of this china cabinet that is Randy's great-grandmother, who actually watched the Civil War from the top of the hill. Uh, the house that he grew up in was used for the Northern Army Hospital, so a lot of history here. The West Farm was about a year old when the U.S.'s Civil War began and a section runs up to the Prairie Grove Battlefield State Park. They have a Bermuda and cattle operation, and Randy used to run chickens. So right through here back this way would be where all the trees, that's pretty much the park, the Battlefield Park. They were one of 82 farm families who applied and were enrolled in the Arkansas Century Farm Program in 2012, when the program began. This free voluntary program through the Arkansas Department of Agriculture recognizes families owning and operating farms on the same land for 100 years or older. Century Farms get a certificate and metal sign identifying their historical farm. Because their daughter and son-in-law are interested in managing the business, the West say they feel secure their land will remain a farm. I've said to many people this summer was kind of a a great time for us. Both of the boys have grown up with me in the tractor when we put up hay, and that's an all-summer thing. And uh, this summer, our oldest grandson, he's 12, he started doing all the stuff, cutting, raking, baling, fluffing, the whole bit, hauling, and driving the tractors by himself and all that. And so it's, and Witten, Witten did his share too. He was great at bringing the snack wagon around so we could have something. and. And he can drive the gator very well. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to see that that's kind of rolling over. Yeah. Land prices are rising. Arkansas's land value rose 4.7%, averaging about $3,500 an acre, according to the United States Department of Agriculture's Land Values 2022 survey. Depending on where landowners are in northwest Arkansas, land can cost as much as $30,000 an acre. In some places, a couple of lots are advertised not by the acre, but by the square foot. Before walking out to Randy's barn, which is chock full of antiques, Cheryl says land sold at higher prices can make farming more expensive, and some producers decide to sell, like a few family farms in their hometown. Unfortunately, yeah, we do see that. I mean, land prices is as high as they've ever been right now. And if you've got if you've got 50 acres or 100 acres and you see that price tag, it's a lot of people are sell, selling out. It's very sad. 
The number of producers in the nation is declining, but slowly, and the average ages of these producers are increasing. For instance, the average age of a farmer in Arkansas is 57, according to the Arkansas Farm Bureau. Cheryl says some producers might not have someone who could or wants to inherit the farm. You know, for us, if we didn't have kids or grandkids that were interested in this place, I'm not sure what would happen here. We're, we've just lucked out in that, that, that we do have, have family that wants to carry it on. There are 563 recognized century farms in the state. Arkansas's program is similar to others, such as Oklahoma's Centennial Farm and Ranch Program, established in 1989, and Missouri's Centennial Farm Project, which started in 1976. Wes Ward is the Arkansas Secretary of Agriculture and says the program started later because the department is relatively new. Uh, agriculture is our is our state's largest industry, and you know that. And uh, most people throughout the state you know, recognize that and realize that. But Arkansas did not have a uh, a state Department of Agriculture until 2005, and it's uh, that really shocked me. What shocked me uh, you know, early on as well is like this this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> The Century Farm Program does not place restrictions on the farm or offer money and legal protections. There are some national, state, and regional programs, such as the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust, geared toward land preservation. But since the 1950s, acres farmed in the Arkansas Ozarks dropped 37 percent, and Washington County experienced a nearly 30 percent decrease of land and farms, according to USDA's Agriculture Census reports, from 1950 to 2017. I tried to bring our programs and services to audiences that are unaware of it or either have not utilized them before. This is Yvette Browning, and she is the Agriculture Department's Administrative and Outreach Coordinator. She says one program the department offers is the Keeping It in the Family program, which is partly meant to prevent the loss of land from black land owners. Browning says having more legal services would be helpful in allowing people to apply for resources and work as a family. And I will say not one landowner that I've talked to wanted to get rid of their land. All of them wanted to learn how to use their land so it would become an asset instead of a liability. So they're very interested in learning, you know, what they can do to, you know, start drawing income off their land. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. Ahead today, we access Prior Center archives to recall a time when Whitewater was the biggest political story in Arkansas and the country. It was 230 acres on the bluffs overlooking the river that the Clintons and McDougals would buy and call Whitewater Estates. Jim McDougal, an enigmatic figure in Arkansas politics during the last part of the 20th century, is the subject of a new Prior Center profile later this hour. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendricks graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. The Cherokee Nation, headquartered in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is pressing the U.S. government to seat Cherokee delegate Kim Teehee in the U.S. House of Representatives, finally fulfilling a promise embedded in an 1835 treaty agreement between both nations. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich spoke with Delegate Teehee. Back in 2019, newly elected Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin, Jr., nominated Kimberly Teehee to serve as the Cherokee Nation's first delegate to the U.S. House of Representatives, guaranteed under a treaty signed by both nations in 1835. The nomination was never confirmed. So this autumn, Chief Hoskin once again is calling on Congress to fulfill that promise. His demand posted on the Cherokee Nation's website. In 1835, the government of the United States and the Cherokee Nation signed the Treaty of New Echota. 
which forced our ancestors to give up their homelands and move west on the Trail of Tears. Today, people remember that dark chapter in our nation's history, where one quarter of the Cherokee Nation population perished. But they may not know that the same treaty promise that was used to remove the Cherokee Nation also guaranteed the tribe a right to send a delegate to Congress. For two centuries, Congress has failed to honor that promise. However, the Treaty of New Echota has no expiration date. The obligation to seat a Cherokee Nation delegate is as binding today as it was in 1835. Congress has yet to formally respond to Chief Hoskins' renewed campaign, but Delegate Teehee, speaking to us by video call, says the treaty agreement is ironclad. The treaty was negotiated with the United States, and it was ratified by the Senate and signed by the President of the United States, making it the supreme law of the land. And knowing that buried in that treaty is this right, and it's not a discretionary kind of right. It reads as a mandate. You know, Cherokee Nation is, ent is entitled, shall be entitled to a delegate in the U.S. House of Representatives. That's a mandate. That's a mandate that's unfulfilled. It's a mandate that the U.S. can easily fulfill by the House seating the delegate in a straight up and down vote. It doesn't require Senate action. A vote, she says, that could occur before the end of this year. Kim Teehee is Director of Government Relations for the Cherokee Nation. She also served during the Obama administration on the White House Domestic Policy Council as the first ever senior policy advisor for Native American affairs. In that position, she helped to generate policies on tribal self-determination, environmental justice, economic growth, public safety, health care, and education. Teehee says her people continue to recover from centuries of brutal U.S. government assimilation policies and practices. Cherokee Nation, you know, because of the forced removal and the destruction that it caused to our government, it took years to rebuild the nation. And, uh, and so as a result of that, uh, Cherokee Nation focused on rebuilding and then modernizing. It wasn't until the 2000s when we modernized our tribal constitution that the principal chief even had the legal authority to nominate a delegate for the council of the Cherokee Nation, which is our legislative branch, to confirm the delegate. So yes, I am the first delegate of the Cherokee Nation. Today, the Cherokee Nation occupies 7,000 square miles of northeastern Oklahoma across 14 counties. Cherokee Nation citizens must prove legal documentation showing ties to at least one direct ancestor listed on the Dawes Rolls of the Cherokee Nation. That's a federal census compiled over eight years at the turn of the 20th century. Currently, the nation counts more than 400,000 Cherokee citizens. Renewing the call to Congress to confirm her as a Cherokee delegate, T, he says, is a consequence of intertribal consensus. And broad support, you know, from the National Congress of American Indians, which is the largest intertribal organization in the country, to organizations in California, the Northwest, the Midwest, the Great Lakes, those areas, and just galvanizing that support. If seated in the U.S. House of Representatives, Teehee will serve in a similar capacity with six U.S. territorial delegates, including from Guam, American Samoa, U.S. Virgin Islands, and Washington, D.C. Such delegates may introduce federal legislation and participate in committee debate, but remain barred from voting, which Teehee takes in stride. You know, there's still so much that you can do leading up to that final vote. And that deliberative process is important. That gives the delegates a lot of authority and votes leading up to that final passage. And, and that's the legal distinction between, frankly, a delegate and a representative of the House. Teehee declined listing any specific goals as delegate, but says the Cherokee Nation and other tribes share similar priorities. We know funding is a huge issue for Indian country. We know that uh, getting Congress to live up to the legal relationship, the trust responsibility that the U.S. has with the tribes is very important. So funding is a large part of that. We know that there are huge gaps in Indian country when it comes to accessing uh, you know, infrastructure dollars, having infrastructure, connectivity, um, access to health care, right? Also public safety, housing, education, all those things. Um, but in addition to that, the cultural piece too. 
you know, for us, it's language preservation. The massive efforts that we are, are undertaking to preserve our language for the future is hugely important to us. So I think just off the cuff, those are the high level areas that I think not only impact Cherokee Nation and would be a part of our priorities, but would also impact all of Indian country. Indian country, it's a contemporary term for modern tribal reserves and jurisdictions, but pre-settlement, all of what would become America was entirely Indian country until the Federal Indian Removal Act of 1830 was enforced, taking eventually 99% of indigenous-owned and occupied lands. For Cherokee, it was the 1835 Treaty of New Achota that conveyed $5 million in payment to the tribe in exchange for 7 million acres of remaining Cherokee ancestral land in Georgia. Under that agreement, struck as you will hear by a minority of Cherokee leaders, all Cherokees would voluntarily move to Indian Territory, a thousand miles away. Yeah, look, the, the, the probably the easiest way, and I may be oversimplifying it to, under, to appreciate that history, is that, that, is that it is true that the Treaty of Nui Chota was uh, not something that Cherokees wanted. Right, that an illegal faction, you know, were the ones that negotiated and signed that treaty. But regardless of that history, the United States signed it, the Senate ratified it, and the President of the United States signed it as well. And, and it is considered today the supreme law of the land. Five years before the treaty agreement, gold was discovered on Cherokee land, triggering a surge of white prospectors taking mineral claims. To facilitate the land rush, the state of Georgia declared all Cherokee Nation laws null and void, prohibited Cherokees from conducting tribal business, making any contracts, testifying against U.S. citizens in court, or mining gold. Cherokee leaders successfully challenged Georgia in the U.S. Supreme Court, but President Andrew Jackson, who supported Indian removal, refused to enforce the court's decision. And because most Cherokees, of course, refused to abandon their homes, gardens, field crops, livestock, forests, and waters, Jackson ordered armed U.S. forces to round them up and march 16,000 elders, men, women, and children, lacking adequate food, clothing, and shelter, on various wilderness routes to Indian Territory, referred to today as the Trail of Tears. More than 4,000 Cherokees lost their lives along the way. Delegate Teehee is a descendant of that ethnic cleansing. For those of us whose ancestors survived, you know, we come from strong stock. Right, we've, we've learned perseverance. We know how to persevere. We know how to survive in tough environments. We also are people of faith and family and community. We actually have a Cherokee word for all that, that we call Gadugi. And so that's, that's something that I learned. But it's also important to learn too that, um, you know, from removal, it wasn't just about the removal. Yes, we lost a quarter of our population, but Congress continued to pummel Indian tribes, Cherokee Nation with laws that it enacted that took away our communal land holdings and doled them out in individual land allotments. The um, stripping away our authority to pass laws and be governed by those laws, stripping away our authority to elect our own principal chiefs. It wasn't until 1970 that Congress once again passed a law that allowed us to once again elect our own chief. The Cherokee were among 60 tribes forcibly relocated into Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma, in the 19th century, yet most Americans remain vastly ignorant about federally sanctioned Indian removal, today increasingly defined as cultural genocide. No, I mean, nothing can ever um, repair the damage and injustice that was done to our people. I mean, that's a foundational matter. But I do think that the, for the United States to keep its word, to, um, that would send an amazing message out to Indian tribes that the United States honors its work by honoring its treaties um, would provide some small measure of justice to those who lost their lives on that forced march. And officially confirming Cherokee Nation Delegate Kim Teehee to Congress could certainly be perceived as another small measure of justice. During her time in the White House, he advised then-President Barack Obama to support the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. 
She also spurred legislation to hold perpetrators accountable for acts of domestic violence against Native American women, known as the Violence Against Women Act. If seated before the end of 2022, Teehee will join six indigenous Americans currently serving in the U.S. House of Representatives. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Bentonville will begin picking up leaves Monday, November 28th. Collections will be done by call-in or email notification. The pickups continue through December 9th. You can find out more at bentonvillear.com. This should go without mentioning, but it is included in the city's official notice, so I'll repeat it. Leaves must be bagged for collection. It feels important to do. Yes. Cash, Creative Arkansas Community Hub and Exchange, is placing a new name on its Springdale location. The Medium, a place to create. A press release this week included the new name and the inspiration behind it, a dedication to representing the region's diverse range of creative and artistic mediums. A launch party will take place at the Medium Friday, December 2nd from 6 to 9. The Medium is the former Art Center of the Ozarks at 214 South Main Street in downtown Springdale. Parking is going to be limited at the Bella Vista Public Library this week. Officials say a roofing project begins this week and will last about six days, meaning all parking around the portico and on the sides of the building could be blocked off. The book drop, by the way, won't be available between 7 a.m. and dark during those project days. Arkansas Public Theater in Rogers will screen a pair of Christmas classic movies this month at the theater in downtown Rogers. The Nightmare Before Christmas will be shown Saturday night at 7, and It's a Wonderful Life will be shown Saturday the 26th at 7. Doors open each night at 6, and more information, including ticket prices, can be found at arkansaspublictheater.org slash tickets. There is nothing honorable about my old friend. My old friend has consistently abandoned everybody who has ever helped him for any protracted length of time. An interesting character is the subject of this week's Prior Center profile. Before we tell you more about that interesting character, let me welcome an interesting character of our own, Randy Dixon, <laughs> with the Prior I'm, Center. I'm glad to be here, Kyle. Welcome back to the uh, Carver Center for Public Radio. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Who is this interesting well, character? Well, uh, those were some mighty harsh words yeah. uh, from a man named Jim McDougal, and he was talking about his former friend and former president, uh, Bill Clinton. This is one of those names that I think really divides longtime residents of Arkansas and newer residents. Because if you've been here for 40 years and paid attention to politics and news, you, you would know, know who he was. But otherwise, no. No, absolutely not, because he never held office. Right. Uh, Though he, he tried. Was, although he, he did try, and we'll hear about that. Uh, he he did, was involved with politics heavily uh, throughout his life, but he gained national attention and prominence in the 1990s, and it was because of an incident and an investigation that we in the news and everyone who followed news uh, – New as Whitewater. It blanketed news coverage for oh. a significant amount of time. Yeah, local news, national news, yeah. international news, uh, and the two names that always came up when you talked about Whitewater was uh, it was the Clintons and the McDougals, Jim and Susan McDougal. But this week we're going to talk about Jim McDougal and all of his. Uh, dealings and um, all of the, what what would you call it? Uh, Machinations and yes. involvement. Yes. Yeah. Um, he had he had quite a life. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting and I guess you could call odd. He was involved in politics early on in college here at the U of A. He led uh, the student government campaign in 1960 for John Kennedy. And later he worked first for uh, Senator McClellan and then legendary Arkansas Senator J. William Fulbright. And when he was working for Fulbright, that's when he met a young intern by the name of Bill Clinton. Even taught for a while at Watchtall Baptist, taught political science with uh, Lieutenant Governor Bob Riley. He meets Clinton, he becomes a professor, then he gets in and starts dabbling with real estate development. So he's doing all that, and that's when Clinton decides to run for attorney general. He becomes involved with his 
uh, campaign and then campaigned for governor in 78 and is on his staff. So he goes from Fulbright staff to real estate to Clinton. But let's talk about him uh, when he worked for Fulbright. Early on, he worked with, as we know, Hoyt Purvis. Right. A longtime journalism professor here. And um, I talked to him the other day. To Hoyt. To Hoyt. And this is how um, he remembers McDougal. He kind of uh, would would spout uh, history and literature uh, at uh, at the drop of a hat. He always had something to say, and I, I think that was that was part of what made him characteristic is that the fact that he had um, uh, he he always had something to say, and he uh, was. Uh, uh, well uh, aware of, of history and literature. Let's let's talk a little more about um, people who worked with him. Steve Smith, who's here at the university, was communications a communications professor. professor. Yep, um, he knew McDougal for years, uh, even back into the early seventies when he met him. But um, he was with him with on the Clinton staff, and um, this is what Steve had to say. When Clinton was running for attorney general in, what was that, 76, mm-hmm. I guess. Then I, I, I met him and, and met Susan and got to know him fairly well. Uh, and then we uh, worked together, together in the governor's office in, in 79. And, uh, I mean, I, the guy's one of the best storytellers I've ever met. He's <laughs> just delightful. He's got such a, you know, he had such a deep uh, reading in, in history and politics. And Steve Smith had another detail to yeah, draw. Yeah, a little, uh, maybe a little more unstable side of McDougal. And so here's Smith again. He was bipolar. So sometimes when he was good, he was very, very good. And when he was bad, he was uh, horrid. <laughs> All right. Earlier I mentioned that he did seek political office. Yes, and I remember this very well because I was attending the University of Arkansas when he was running against John Paul Hammerschmidt. Okay, this would have been 1982. Right. Third District Congress. Um, and that's when I met him. Also, I was working on the assignment desk at KTV, and it was sometime during the campaign in 82, and Jim Pitcock, news director, had taken a phone call from the lobby, and he said, Randy, there's uh, a third district congressional candidate in the lobby um he uh his name's jim mcdougall he said i know who he is um go down there and interview him he said he's he's not gonna win and jim pitcock didn't put it that way he he said you know that he's trailing in the polls just go down and and talk to him we you know we're gonna give him equal time so i went down and interviewed him and i i thought he was a little Quirky, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. but uh, very friendly um, and very, very open and engaging. He was. I mean, he was an engaging fella. But, um, you know, he lost. I, I talked to Steve Smith about him running for that office. You know, gave great stunt speeches and, and uh, shook hands. And after the election was over, he said, you know, I, I was all pumped up. He said, I'd go, go work, walking down the street. And so every third person I met said, yeah, I'm for you. I'm for you. I'm going to vote for you. And he said, then I realized that meant that I was going to have a third of the vote. <laughs> if you go out on the street and you run into a lot of people, and every third person says something positive, you feel good. Oh, gosh, but then when I you feel think, great. <laughs> but, but then, then you... you realize, wait, that's a third of the vote. Right. I'm going to lose. And he did. And lose big. Yeah. yeah. Which he did. And he ran again in 94. Which I barely remember. Right. Well, because he lost in the primary. And it wasn't the third district he was running in at no, that point. No, it was the fourth district uh, down in South Arkansas. Right. So let's talk about Whitewater. This is how everybody knows Jim McDougal. Nobody remembers that he ran for Congress or that he worked for Fulbright. He was a major, major figure in Whitewater. Um so it's a really complicated story that took place over, 
I mean, decades. It started in the 70s and went well into the 90s when you include the investigation. It's this land deal on the White River. Uh, yeah, loans. Investments, yeah. And paybacks and uh, fraudulent loans, yeah. as a matter of fact. I found this in the archives, a part of an ABC News report from Mark Potter, and he sort of sets things up. Um, and in this piece, you're going to hear from Jim McDougal and, at the end, Bill Clinton. Who was then a presidential candidate. Yes. It was 230 acres on the bluffs overlooking the river that the Clintons and McDougals would buy and call Whitewater Estate. They struck the deal at the peak of the 1970s land boom thinking they had a great chance to make money selling lots for vacation and retirement homes. The Clintons were told about the property by James McDougal. And I think I saw Bill and, down at Bill and Hillary down at the Black Eyed Pea, you know, the restaurant. I said, I got this piece of land up on the White River I'm going to buy. You want to go in with me? Knowing how successful McDougal had been with other ventures, the Clintons signed on. Well, it was an investment. It was, I was hoping, obviously, I, like everybody who puts up money in a deal, I was hoping we'd make money. Long, complicated story short, uh, he was convicted on 18 counts of fraud. 18? Yes. And um, here, well, let's listen to part of a KATV live report from the courthouse, and this is where the special counsel, Kenneth Starr, who was doing all this, we'll talk about him in a second, but Starr makes this comment right after the sentencing. What the original mandate to our office asks us to do is to examine the relationship between three individuals and three entities. Mr. McDougall is one of the three named persons in the original mandate, and we have found his cooperation very helpful to us. Aren't the Clintons mentioned in that mandate as well? The mandate speaks for itself. Right now you're listening to independent counsel Kenneth Starr reacting to the sentence just given to Whitewater figure Jim McDougal. Just to recap, that sentence was three years in prison and three years probation. One of those years will be served under house arrest. And then after that, out comes McDougal. And of course, he loved the cameras. He was, I would call him a showman. He was always dressed for the part, almost like he, it was like he fancied himself a Southern gentleman. Mm -hmm. He would always have like a white hat mm -hmm. and a vest and maybe seersucker, but he would walk with a cane usually. But um, this is what he had to say outside the courtroom. I'm not, uh, I'm not peddling truth or uh, asking people to believe anything. I have simply responded, and I think that the documentary evidence will substantiate anything I have said to the independent counsel. Jim, you, you said during the proceedings of your trial last year that the proceedings would absolve the Clintons of any wrongdoing. Is that statement still operative? I wouldn't go to the bank on that, Steve. Mr. McDougal, do you believe yes. the, the sentence today was fair? Well, I said when we started the trial, uh, however long ago it was, a year ago, that uh, I thought Judge Howard would be fair and that I had no complaint about anything he'd do or say, and I think I'd stick with that. I, I have no real, uh, I think Judge Howard's been very understanding. McDougal convicted of 18 counts, and this is what really sort of accelerated uh, the conversation about Whitewater towards the Clintons. Sure, and the investigation was extended yes. at that point. Now, um, you know, the question was still, what were the Clintons' involvement? And, uh, I mean, this was just over a week after McDougal's sentencing, but this is what now President Clinton had to say on CBS. Well, this thing's been going on for over three years. Tens of millions of dollars have been spent. And there have been, by the way, two federal reports by independent agencies saying that what I said and what my wife said in the very beginning of this was true, that we were not involved in running the savings and loan, that we lost money on a real estate deal, and that this whole inquiry is, is going after two people who lost money on a real estate deal made almost 19 years ago now. And that's what this whole thing has been about. And uh, so all I can do is keep smiling, keep cooperating, and answering the questions that are asked of me and spending my time being president. 
More to this story. Well, McDougal, who doesn't want to die in prison, uh, starts cooperating with the independent counsel, you know, to get his sentence reduced, which happens. Um, he was, uh, I think he was sentenced to three years. It was reduced to three years. Which was a surprise when it was announced because people yes. thought he was going to get far get more. Much longer. Yeah. Uh, but because of his cooperation, which, which is how investigations go. Right. And many speculated that he was just saying what the special counsel wanted to hear and what the grand jury wanted to hear um, and not the truth necessarily. Exactly. When I talked to Steve Smith, he told me that he was given a script mm. and was told to read it to the grand jury. He refused. Mm hmm. And he got into trouble, and fortunately for him, uh, the president pardoned him. Yeah. But he he refused, as did McDougal's wife. That's a whole other story we're going to hear about later. But um, KTV, after he was sentenced and went to prison, he went to prison in Fort Worth. Uh, our reporter, Joan Early, and I went down— um, and we were with our photographer, Larry Potter, and we interviewed him. As a matter of fact, it was, I believe, the last television interview he did before he died. But um, here's what Jim McDougal had to say about being in prison. I think the hardest thing has just been uh, every facet of your life, of course, is regulated. And, uh, you know, when you get up, when you go to bed, that sort of thing. Uh, it's uh, it's unpleasant to to not be able to see the people that you you know care for and enjoy and so on. But uh, as I said, it's not a total intellectual desert because there are very many interesting people here. He also talked about his former friends, the Clintons. Yes, and he was not shy uh, about his bitterness towards them, especially as he put it, his old friend Bill. There is nothing honorable about my old friend. My old friend has consistently abandoned everybody who has ever helped him for any protracted length of time. Uh, the worst thing he did to me was when he testified in my trial. If you'll recall, we took the tape deposition before, before the trial, and he repeatedly lied in that deposition, which forced me into the position of having to lie to support him at my trial. I love that you also called Joan Early to talk to her about what she remembered about this. Yes, we've stayed in touch over the years, and um, she's gotten out of TV but still lives uh, in Arkansas. And um, I talked to her and wanted to know her you know, memory of this time she spent with McDougal that ended up being the last months of his life. He was someone who, who I think was trying to make the best of the situation. I think at that point in time he had decided to cooperate with Ken Starr. And so mm -hmm. he was telling that that part of the story that um, he hadn't told before. And um, and he seemed at peace with it. Everyone has said he was a great storyteller and he could go on and on, which to me shows he loved the attention. And boy, that showed when he was on camera. He, he always had this sly, you know, look on his face like he wasn't quite telling you everything. Um, and, you know, he, he uh, I think he did fancy himself, you know, a Southern gentleman. And so I asked Joan what, what, what she took from, you know, I knew what I took from him. I wanted to know what she took. And even in his prison garb, he was still a showman. I mean, he had personality plus. There was um, not a moment where he wasn't, um, trying to be charming, funny, um, uh, intelligent, trying to outwit people always. Um, and so I think that was the part where you, you, you thought, is this the real Jim McDougal now? I don't know if we ever saw the real Jim McDougal. She went the exact opposite direction Jim McDougal did. He was always before the cameras. He was very open. He would talk at the drop of a hat and uh, say at times some outrageous things and 
Susan wouldn't say a word, mm -hmm. would not testify, would not talk to the prosecutors, would not talk to the grand jury, and um, she paid a price. And, well, let's talk about that next week. Very good. Randy, always great to have you here in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. You can find out so much about Arkansas history by just going to the Pryor Center's website. Have a great week. Hey, you too. Arkansas SHIP, the Arkansas Senior Health Insurance Information Program, announces open enrollment now through December 7th. Arkansas SHIP offers free, confidential, unbiased, and educational advice for those needing to find the best Medicare Part D drug plan for 2023. For more, 1-800-224-6330. This is Ozarks at Large. The next Arkansas legislature will have an even bigger Republican majority after Tuesday's election, and a new Republican governor will be in charge. This weekend, Roby Brock, with our partner Talk Business and Politics, talked with Republican State Senator Bart Hester, the new Senate President Pro Tem, about what he expects for the next few years. Senator Hester says he's encouraged by what Governor-elect Sanders mentioned in her speech Tuesday night. What I appreciated most is talking about reform in education, right? A third of Arkansas kids, a third of them can read at grade level, and that's kindergarten through 12th grade. It's not acceptable. It's been that way forever. And if we want to change things, we've got to act differently. We've got to have different philosophies and different um, processes coming up throughout our Department of Education. Kids got to read uh, before they can do math well. Kids got to read before they can do anything. Uh, and so we're going to focus on reading, um, and that's going to be uh, uh, a lot of that is also going to go back on this education to parental empowerment. So I'm very encouraged, encouraged with uh, Governor Sanders' um, uh, focus on education. I also appreciate her focus on keeping our Kansans safe. Uh, we're going to have to build a new prison. That's going to cost a lot of money, but when we have to keep v violent offenders locked up in Arkansas, because if we're not safe, we can't educate our kids. We can't get jobs for everybody. Safety is key. And number one, we're going to work on that. All right. Let's talk about uh, two of those subjects that you just brought up there. How do you get kids reading at a, a, a more proficient level from what we've been doing? What's the new? Is there a new program? Is there a new philosophy? Is there new money? What are you going to do to help move that needle more than just somewhat incrementally, but to move it in a big way? What's the what's the driver of that change? I think any, anywhere, if you really want to see where someone's focus is, you see where their time is and you see where their money is. So we're going to have to put the time at our schools into reading, and we're going to have to focus money into reading. Uh, that's a kind of a simple answer on anything. Every time we meet as a legislature, we add something on to our teachers to do that is not focused on reading. And it may be time that we rewind a lot of that stuff back. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that we do at school that are good, but until you read, you may not need to be doing the other things. So uh, I'm going to be a proponent of, of removing almost anything out of the way that's keeping these kids from reading. They can become well-rounded after they can read. Give me an example of something that you want to get out of the way to allow for more time and energy and focus on reading. Well, you know, anything you say is going to be a hot button issue for people. <laughs> but look, we, we do uh, we do things that, that are that are very important, but I um but like kids do not have to do as much athletics. They do not have to do as much art. They do not have to do as much band. They do not have to do as much science. They do not have to do as much history if they can't read. Once they can read, then they can focus on history. Then they can focus on science. Then they can focus on things, uh, band and music and art and other things that are, that are critical to a well-rounded student. But all those things are secondary to reading. Okay, that's good. I just was looking for some, uh, I know there's been conversations, but I haven't seen anything concrete. Uh, the Governor Hutchinson proposed his balanced budget to the next biennium, and it included another $550 million in new funding for education. That would allow for teacher pay if the legislature chooses to do so. He didn't really put any strings on it there. And of course, you guys will get to do whatever you want to do with the budget. You're in charge of that. Uh, he just gives you a, a blueprint to start with. With an extra $550 million, I mean, could that solve a lot of the problems that you're talking about? Well, here's what we know. Uh, more money in education isn't solving any problems. We're already spending over 40% of the state's budget on education, and we're failing. We're failing students. We're failing teachers. We're failing everywhere. So the money is not being spent appropriately. So this is not a funding problem. This is a spending problem. 
So we're going to have to really dive in on how is the money that we're already sending being spent. And with over 40% of the tax dollars in Arkansas going to education, you can't argue we're not spending enough. We are spending plenty. We're not spending it right. All right. Uh, you mentioned public safety, another area that I wanted to visit with you about there. The governor's budget had no proposal for building an extra prison. Is that going to come out of surplus funds that are already uh, out there that you guys have uh, just kind of in a savings account? Or where do you anticipate this new thousand bed prison is going to come from? And is a is one prison, new prison, going to be enough for what you think the, the problem is? Well, some people say 1,000 beds. I say we need 3,000 beds, right? And we'll continue to talk about that as, a, as the legislature. But the good news is when you have a significant amount of savings, and we do, we've got a couple of billion dollars that are available to us, you really have options. Now, I'm not interested in spending all of that money, but when you have savings and you have significant needs, and prison beds is a significant need in Arkansas, we've got violent offenders that we're having to turn back out into the public that are harming people. Um, it's making them unsafe at their homes, making them unsafe in their streets. Um, and so we've got to get more prison beds to keep violent offenders locked up. State Senator Bart Hester is a Republican from Cave Springs. He'll be the Senate President Pro Tem in the next session that begins in January. He and Roby Brock also discussed what may change for the Our Home program and Medicaid spending in Arkansas. You can find the entire conversation at talkbusiness.net. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas' Samuel Conlon Nancarrow was born October 27, 1912 in Texarkana in Miller County. His mother, Myra Brady, was a pianist. His New York native father, Samuel Charles Nancarrow, was the city's mayor in the late 1920s and an affluent industrialist. Conlon loved music and played the trumpet and scandalized his parents by reading socialist tracts. The younger Nancarrow was thus shipped off to an Illinois military school, but he used the opportunity to study music. Similarly, later, Nancarrow's father sent 15-year-old Conlon to Vanderbilt University in Tennessee to learn engineering, but after a semester, Conlon ended up at Cincinnati College in Ohio, again studying music. Conlon Nancarrow admired Bach and also jazz and blues artists like Earl Hines and Bessie Smith. He continued studying music and composition through the 1930s, including conducting a WPA orchestra during the Great Depression. Nancarrow returned to Arkansas after being wounded in Spain fighting against Franco's fascists. He was later denied a passport in the U.S. for his participation in the Spanish Civil War and subsequently moved to Mexico City in 1940. Nancarrow became a Mexican citizen in 1956. While in Mexico, Conlon Nancarrow began working on the music that would make his name as a composer with a singular vision. Sawyer had long been displeased with the way mere mortals played his intricate music, so Conlon Nancaro began composing with player pianos in mind. He machine-punched his notes into player piano roles. Soon, Nancaro was composing for multiple player pianos, layering his frenzied rhythms and melodies atop one another. He added shellac and strips of tin to his piano hammers to give the notes a crispness amongst the forceful playing. Let's say you have two, two times going, two, two tempi going at the same time. You know, if you have one going and something else and whatever, if you have both at the same, let's say, melodic uh, uh, proportions, it's easier to follow the, 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 the temporal changes. So, uh, in other words, if, uh, you know, say one starts off this way, if it's the same melody, you don't have to follow the melody. You're, you're just hearing the, the temporal relationship. So, if it's the same melody going, I mean, it's easier for me. I just have to do it once.
Word began to spread about this composer with the unusual sound and methods. In 1969, Conlon Nancarrow's debut album, Studies for Player Piano, was released on Columbia Records. A better recorded four-volume series for the smaller 1750 Arch Records helped solidify his reputation. In 1977, Nancarrow's scores were published for the first time. He toured Europe and the U.S. in the 1980s, where his complex compositions caused sensations well beyond the classical world. The Miller County native was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 1982 at age 70. The Paul Soccer Foundation in Switzerland obtained and preserves Nancarrow's piano rolls and manuscripts. Samuel Conlon Nancarrow died August 10, 1997 in Mexico City, Mexico. His centennial was observed in his old hometown of Texarkana in 2012 with Nancarrow's son and widow in attendance. Musicians and the listening public are still catching up with the compositions of Conlon Nancarrow. Here's Arkansas-er Conlon Nancarrow of Texarkana with Prelude for Piano. Arkansas-er Conlon Nancaro of Texarkana with Prelude for Piano. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Producer is Keith Merckx. Arkansas since 1998. Tomorrow on Ozarks, there are many people around the world without access to toilets. 1.7 billion people do not have adequate sanitation. And of those 1.7 billion, almost a half a billion practice open defecation because they have no sanitation. How LifeWater in Bentonville is trying to reduce that number one village at a time. That's on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and at 7 and on the Ozarks at Large podcast. Arkansas SHIP, the Arkansas Senior Health Insurance Information Program, announces open enrollment now through December 7th. Arkansas SHIP offers free, confidential, unbiased, and educational advice for those needing to find the best Medicare Part D drug plan for 2023. For more, 1-800-224-6330. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 Arts Series presents Delfeo Marsalis and the Uptown Jazz Orchestra, Sunday, November 20th at 7 p.m. A member of the Marsalis family of musicians, Delfeo is an acclaimed trombonist who leads the brass-heavy Uptown Jazz Orchestra in a concert paying tribute to the sounds of New Orleans. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Jasper. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Anna Pope, Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. We'll talk to you again very soon.